Well, good morning, church, here and in the sanctuary and on live stream. Just a couple of things. For two weeks, we, I ask you to consider we're going to do a new regimen starting in June and especially July of those two months. And we need some help in children's ministry. I ask those of you here to uh, consider doing or just do it, uh, serve on three different Sundays, our children. And we've had a good response. In fact, we've had a really good response. But if we have 20 more, it'll make it even better. So if you're able to do that, you know, sign up online at the kiosk out here, please. That's, we'll start that on the first Sunday of June. The second thing is, uh, this is the last Sunday we're gonna, we're gonna ask you to wear these things. So that's the last Sunday. And that is, yeah, that's, that's worthy of a really strong applause. So thankful that uh, the Lord has seen us through this season. We feel safe. If, if you want to wear it next week, nobody's going to ask you to take off your mask, okay? But we're not wearing these next week. So be prepared to meet people you've never met before, even you sat around them all for the last year, okay? All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we are your people and you are our shepherd and we ask now that you would teach us and bless us and show us yourself in power. We wait upon you, we look to you. We believe this is the word of God given to us and we're to walk in obedience to you. Blessed be your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Almighty God, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going through this theme of, of just as we internal statement, as we walk among each other, you know, helping broken people to treasure, worship, love Jesus. So helping, mutual responsibility, broken people. Now, broken people means people that are uh, sinful, people that are not perfect, people that struggle with issues. Um, See, we see brokenness around us in the war in the Middle East. We see brokenness and unrest in our cities. We see brokenness in fractured relationships. We see brokenness in family discord, but we also see brokenness within us, that we are never going to be free of sin. There is going to be issues in our life that need the power of Jesus to claim and to tame. Uh, we are like the Apostle Paul, who says in Romans chapter 7, the good things I want to do, I don't always do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I sometimes do. So that is, that is my experience, that's your experience, when we're honest. So we are broken people, we ought to understand that. There's a man named H. H. Richard Niebuhr who said this in the 50s. I thought it was a great summation. He said that in the church in America at that time, says, we have a, a God without wrath, bringing people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without the cross. And what he was saying is that until we understand that God is holy, 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 and we're separated from this holy, holy, holy God by our sin, we'll never get the cross. Until we understand that this holy, holy, holy God must judge sin, we'll never get the cross. And until we understand these things, we won't get it. So we are saying that we're broken people, and because we're broken people, we run to Jesus. We, we, as in our brokenness, we run to Jesus because he says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are 
weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That would be me. That would be you. We run to Jesus because we know in the book of Colossians, it says that all things were made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through him, and in Christ, all things hold together. Your family, your life, your friendships, so we run to Jesus. And Paul says later in the book of Colossians chapter 2, he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or beating the body, asceticism and worship of angels going into detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. He says, from whom the whole body, the church, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He says there's, there's people in, in Colossae who were going into great detail about visions and angels and this and that, but they weren't talking about Jesus. And Paul says, we talk about the gospel. We talk about Jesus because in Jesus, everything holds together and we grow in him. So broken people run to Christ, run to Jesus. They treasure him. So we're looking at Psalm 51, which is a psalm of, of repentance, a psalm of confession. The background, I'll do this very quickly. David is the king of Israel. He's at the height of his power, late 40s. And in his great power, he is not doing the things he should be doing. And in his, really his slothful living at this point, he sees a beautiful woman. He takes her into his house. He has an adulterous relationship. She's married. She becomes pregnant. He tries to pull one over on her husband who's bivouacked in the field. He doesn't happen. So he arranges for her husband and some valiant men with him to be killed in battle to cover up her pregnancy by David. So when all that happens, David takes her in as his wife, and he thinks nobody knows, but he's tormented. He's an adulterer. He's a mass multiple murderer. He's a liar, and he's a deceiver. And he's sitting there on the throne without anybody's knowledge but God's that he's blown it. And I think he's miserable. He's miserable. And then in the midst of all that, God sends a prophet named Nathan. A prophet was the, the, the group of people who spoke the word of God before we had the Bible. Nathan goes into court and he tells David a little story about a landowner who abused a tenant farmer next door. And David is furious. And Nathan says, King David, you are that man. You have detested, the word is detested. You have detested the word of God. You have detested the character of God by your sin. Strong. And so David says, I've sinned against God. And so in the aftermath of that disclosure of his adultery and murder and deceit and duplicitous behavior, he writes Psalm 51. It's a powerful psalm. And he says, he begins by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your tender mercies, according to your abundant forgiveness, blot out all of my iniquities. Wash me from my sin, cleanse me from my sin. And, and, and it just pleads with God to have mercy. And he talks about the fact that God loves truth in the inmost being. And he says, this is an amazing statement to me. He says in verse eight, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let, let, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Let the bones you've broken in your disciplining love, Father, rejoice. Amazing. 
And then he says, once again, he reaffirms verse 9. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And, and this embrace of forgiveness was based upon the work of the sacrifice for sin. He says this in verse 6 or 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What that means is this. Hyssop was a branch that the priest would, he would shed the blood of the lamb. He would put the hyssop in the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the people to signify forgiveness or sin or cleansing from leprosy. So, so it represented the, the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the people. And, and when the angel of death came through in Exodus, the 10th plague, uh, the children of Israel had been said time after time, let us go and worship. And Pharaoh said, no, no, no. Finally, the 10th plague, the, the angel of death came through and, and killed the firstborn in every Egyptian household, in every house in Egypt, unless there was hyssop had been dipped in the blood of the lamb and sprinkled on the top and the sides of the, of the door frame. And then it passed by. See, the blood of the lamb, the sprinkling of hyssop, for signified the coming work of Jesus on the cross. Christ is called repeatedly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's called the one who is a perfect sacrifice who once and for all, one act has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system that for signified the coming of Jesus. So David's hope, he goes from despair to hope because he sees the reality of forgiveness through the work of the blood of the Lamb. And so that, that, that's just that, 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 that beautiful statement. When we come to this issue today, I'm going to just do with two parts of today. How broken people pray. How do broken people pray? Well, there's a little statement in the New City Catechism that says, prayer is the pouring out of your heart to God. In praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. I, I love this. I love the pouring out of your heart. It's the pouring out of your heart to God. Um, there's a little book called, I just read this week, called Prayer, or Pray Big, by a guy named Alistair Begg. And he says this in the very first chapter. He says, a self-assured, see, a self-assured person is not going to pray prayers of petition. There's no need to pray if you think you have got it all covered, you see? But broken people pray. That's what I'm saying. A self-righteous person who thinks he can do it on his own. A self-righteous person is not going to pray prayers of confession. There's no need to pray if you think you're good enough to earn God's blessing. You don't need the Lamb of God. You can do it on your own. But the person who knows their heart before God, the person who knows the depth of their need of forgiveness and help from God, does what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 3. He bows his knee to the Father who's in heaven. See, see proud people don't pray because they, they're fine. Self-assured people don't pray because they just have to try a little bit harder. Uh, I mean, broken people pour out their hearts. So I'm, I'm looking at this and just how, how broken people pray. And he says this, create in me a clean heart, O God. He's sitting there, he said, God, I've been an adulterer. A murderer, a liar. Now I ask you, you, God, create in me a clean heart. The word for create means to chisel as if doing a, a piece of art out of a block of marble. See, 
I've, I've always been amazed. I, I'm not an artist. I don't have any of that ability. But people who have that gift amaze me. I've always been amazed at Michelangelo. died in 1564. By the way, Michelangelo was really influenced by a preacher of the gospel named Savonarola. That's just for fun in, in Florence. Savonarola was eventually burned at the stake, but he preached the gospel. Michelangelo heard. Anyway, so but Michelangelo would go to a, a, a rock quarry, a marble quarry, and see a piece of marble and envision David or the Pieta or Moses in chains. It's just amazing to me. He just, I mean, chip, 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 chip. That's what this word means. God, you create in me a clean heart. I'm sitting here, I'm consumed with passion. I'm consumed with murder. Please create in me a clean heart. See, David understood what Jesus would say in John 15, where he says, verse five, I am the tree, I'm the vine. You're just a sprig, a sprig. Whoever abides in the vine or the tree will bring forth much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. Now, the nothing doesn't mean you can't do math or auto mechanics or physics or, or, or do wonderful work. It means you can't do anything of deep, lasting, spiritual good unless you're in union with Jesus. And so David says, God, you create. You created me a, a clean heart. You've got to do it. So uh, in church history, there was a guy named Augustine. He died in 430. And Augustine had this incredible controversy with a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius said, basically, man wasn't really a sinner. So he disagreed with the Bible. So man wasn't a sinner. In fact, man could choose to do the good. In fact, some people said, some people that follow Pelagius said, if you follow his logic, what Pelagius would say is there's a, a, a possibility that a man could choose not to sin and he wouldn't need the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins. So, so maybe Jesus would be a good example or maybe Jesus would show how to have victory, but Jesus would not necessarily need to be a substitute for my sin, which was the main reason for the cross. So, and Augustine thundered against him. And thankfully, Augustine won because Augustine was quoting the Bible. But he had a, a famous saying that drove Pelagius crazy. It says this. Augustine said, give what you command and then command what you will. Let me explain that. Augustine says, Lord, you've called us to do this. So you give the energy by the power of the Holy Spirit you give what you command and then command what you will. But you've got to give the power. David said the same thing. Give what you command, O Lord, and then command what you give. Create in me a, a clean heart, O God. Or, or, or this statement, listen. God is the decisive factor or figure in making us what we should be. I'll say it again. God is the decisive factor in making us what we should be. Example, in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, the scripture says, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of pardon. Don't grieve the spirit. It says, verse 31, let all bitterness 
and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice and be kind to one another tenderhearted forgiving one another just as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ so so Paul says don't grieve the Holy Spirit Plead for the power of the Spirit, and as you do that, you get rid of malice and slander and, 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 and bitterness and clamor, and, and you forgive one another with a tender heart just as God has forgiven you in Jesus. He does not say, you know, don't read the Spirit and say, well, I'm, I'm an angry person. I'm working through this angry attitude for the next year. He says, no, just, just get rid of it. It's a powerful statement. You don't say, well, I'm bitter towards person X and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm working through my bitterness. I don't even know what that means. But Paul says, you know, you just get rid of it. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. Give what you command and then command what you will. So I, I look at this and I, I'm filled with, with, with great optimism when it comes to being a child of God. I put the Westminster Confession of Faith Article 13 in here, section three, kind of gave it an updated language, but listen to this. This is Westman's Confession. In the battle between sin and grace in the life of the believer, although the remaining sin, see we have remaining sin in our bodies, okay? Although the remaining sin for a time may seem to prevail. The Christians do struggle with sin and we live there sometimes for a while. Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the empowering, sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part or the born-again part of our, our being does overcome, and the saints grow in grace, pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord. In other words, you have received the Holy Spirit and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, says First John. And there, there may be a season where sin, sin seems to prevail, but it doesn't last forever because the supply that comes from the Holy Spirit energizes and changes us. Therefore, David could pray, create Almighty God in me in my fallen, horrible, lustful period right now, a clean heart, oh God. It was just powerful to me. And it, and it fills me with incredible hope and optimism because God is God. You see, even in David's despair, he knew that the Lord was the shepherd. He knew the Lord led him beside the still waters and in the green pastures. He knew that God anointed his head with oil. He knew that he prepared a place for him in the presence of his enemies and that surely goodness and mercy would follow him all the days of his life. So, child of God, cry out to God, create in me a whatever, by your power. So there's a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in the 1700s by a guy named John Bunyan. It's, it's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian faith. Christian is going to heaven. But he goes to a place called the House of the Interpreter. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. The House of the Interpreter, we were introduced to several one-act plays, if you would, one-act plays. And, and one of the plays that 
Christian sees in the house of the interpreter. He walks into a room and there's a wall here and he sees a fire at the base of the wall and there's a man on one side of the wall throwing copious amounts of water on the fire, but it's still burned. And Pilgrim looks at the interpreter, the guy who's in, helping him understand what's going on. He says, I don't get it. I mean, water's being poured, the fire is burning. And the interpreter says, well, come with me. And they walk around the other side of the wall and they look and there on the other side of the wall stands someone pouring even more copious amounts of oil on the fire. So it burned brightly. And the interpreter said, the man throwing water on the fire is the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But this blessed person on the other side is the Lord Jesus, who by his Holy Spirit is pouring oil into your life so the fire will never go out. This is your optimism. That God is at work. And I, I just, so... Let me read this. This is from this is last week's edition uh, interview in the Wall Street Journal. It's the interview with a woman named Jean Twinge, who is a professor at San Diego State University, is entitled, Oh, to be young and pessimistic in America today. And, and, and this is, I'm going to read three or four paragraphs. And she says that, said that the, the, the iGen generation, that's those born between uh, the year 1995 and 2015. So the iGen would be this year's high school, college graduates, and many graduate school graduates, so the iGen generation. And she says, this generation, COVID has been good, especially for high schoolers, because they were able to sleep more, and they spent time with their families. That's one upside of, of COVID. And she says this, but this generation exhibits higher rates of suicide and depression since studies began in the 1950, and far higher rates of general pessimism than any generation dating back to 1960. In fact, depression rates have increased by 52% among adolescents ages 12 to 17 and 63% in young adults aged 18 to 25 since 2017, four years. And she talks about why this would be. And she says, well, part of the problem is their parents. And she says that the parents have gone from a shift from encouraging to fear. She says, as parents' anxiety about the world rose, they seem to have passed that feelings down to their children. She says, this is a mystery to me. She says, because if you look at the last 25 years, violent crime rates are down, that kids live safely, uh, more physically safe than ever before, but fearfulness has increased. And she says, other generations had to deal with the Great Depression or wars or economic meltdowns. She says, she says really, there's no true basis for this general malaise or pessimism. And she says this. She says that uh, online work has especially done this, especially regarding social media and the closely related decline of in-person socializing, which account for today's teens, high rates of anxiety, depression, and self-harm. And then she said this. She's called Generation Z, the loneliest generation on record. And that broke my heart. Let me, let me just, if, if you're part of this generation, if you're parenting kids in that generation, repent of your pessimism. I hear people say all the time, oh, this is a horrible time to be alive. And it's so hard. I mean, yeah, 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 okay, sure. What are you going to do about it? You're going to trust Jesus and walk in obedience. 
You're going to say, Lord, let me be a person who brings the reality of Christ to my culture. Let me be a person of change. I, I mean, God has seen fit to let you be alive in 2021. Embrace it. And because we serve a God who works and who changes and who empowers people to cry out like David, create in me a blank heart, O God, and renew me with a steadfast spirit, unwavering spirit. This is what we should be doing. See, God gives you new eyes to see. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to hope and joy and going for it. The other day I was thinking about Psalm 19. I've been here a number of years in Charleston. I have never, ever experienced a more beautiful May than this year. What a, what a May we've had. I mean, I've been to outdoor weddings where people are outside and they're not perspiring. I mean, think about it. And there are no bugs. Where are the bugs? I'm sure they're coming. But I mean, I'm, I was at a wedding last night. I've been to two outdoor weddings the last two weeks. You're outside. I mean, one outdoor wedding last night. We, we were outside because it was more comfortable outside than even inside the pavilion. It was amazing. I thought, man, what beauty. Just, so so I, I thought of Psalm 19 the other day. I was, Psalm 19 is just, just I, I love this part. It goes, it goes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there any words whose voice is not heard. I mean, just you look at the blue sky and the greenness of the trees and the panoramic views of our harbor and, and, or the marshlands, and you go, these are declaring the glory of God. You say that because God has given you eyes to see that these things are signposts to the deep reality and the joy that awaits us. This is beautiful, but there's going to be beauty in heaven that is so much superior to this, it's not even comparable. It's, it's a sign. And, and then I thought about that and I thought, you, you go to an environmentalist meeting or you go to the Sierra Club meeting, they're dear people who love creation and love the earth and I'm thankful for them. They love our national park system, but, but it just stops there. It's beautiful. Boom, it stops. We say, it's beautiful. Wow. Wow. So I, I was standing outside Friday. I was holding my little three-week-old grandbaby, little girl. And I was looking at those precious eyes and those fingers and those toes. And, and I was standing there with her and I had, I had Neil Diamond on my pan, on Pandora. And I was dancing with her, you know, which, you know, says two things. Number one, Neil Diamond on the, on the Pandora means maybe I don't have a good taste in music. And I'm old. It says those two things. Uh, I like Neil Diamond. But anyway, we're dancing to, dancing to Sweet Caroline, you know, and it's just, just fun. And, and I thought, this life is incredible, and it points to a deeper glory that Jesus made this life. Life is a gift from God. If I'm a secularist, I can hold a little baby, and I can rejoice, and I can smile and laugh, but it just, it just stops there. Life, this little life is beautiful. We say, this is life is beautiful, and all life is beautiful, and it points to a God who's a creator God. And it just feels, it makes me laugh. It makes me happy. So, so what I'm saying is, is that we believe, with, we're optimistic because God has given us eyes to see, and he's changing us. The Holy Spirit changes. So David, in his dysfunction, because he sees the glory of sins forgiven by the blood, he cry out, create in me. A clean heart, oh God. 
I've covered this with men man to man, but there's something, the last two weeks, there's something called the Nashville Statement on Human Sexuality about how, how to respond to um, sex outside of marriage, uh, gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, and, and I, just 14 brief articles, but I love Article 12. This is what it says. You're going to see it up on the screen. We affirm, we affirm, we affirm that the grace of God in Christ gives both the merciful pardon and the transforming power. And that this pardon and power enable a follower of Jesus to put to death sinful desires and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, like the old hymn says, um, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in the, let the water and the blood from the wounded side which so be for sin, the double cure, save from wrath, absolutely merciful pardon, and make me pure. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we cry out, in our, in our, in our hurt and our pain, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. It says we deny that the grace of God in Christ is insufficient to forgive all sexual sins and to give power for holiness to every believer who feels drawn into a sexual sin. So that what it says that, that if, if people that are involved, have been involved in a sexual sin are clean, they're forgiven, and God by his power and his spirit gives us the ability to not walk in that. It's just a beautiful statement. So I, I look at this and I say, create in me a clean heart, oh God. You, you create, empower, you do it, you do it. And then the second one, this is create me a clean heart and renew, renew a right spirit within me. The word for renew means to repair, renew in me an unwavering spirit, a resolute spirit. See, I'm, David, David can remember. David remembers a time when he had an unwavering spirit, when he was just resolute. And he probably went back to what's recorded in 1 Samuel 17. There was a young guy named David, the same guy, 15, 16, 14 years old, who was taking food from his daddy Jesse to his three older brothers. It says bread and cheese. And he took this to his brothers and is there one day visiting them. And the army of Israel was here and the Philistines were here. And, and there was a Philistine who was named Goliath who was almost 10 feet tall. And he was not only tall, but he was broad and big. And he would come out, the Bible says, day and night. And he would mock these men and curse God. And he would say, let's have a heavyweight match, your best against me. Whoever wins takes both armies. And it says that when the men heard Goliath's challenge, they fled for fear. And David's in camp. He's, he's a young guy. And he's delivering food. And he hears the challenge. And he says to those around him, including his brothers, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that she, he should mock the armies of the living God. <laughs> how, how dare he curse Jehovah God who made the heavens and the earth? How dare he say these things? And his brothers looked at him and said, shut up. They did. You're young. You know what you're talking about. But it was reported to Saul, the king, who was in his tent hiding. Saul should have been out fighting. David came in, they went through this rigmarole and fine. David said, I'll, I'll, I'll fight him with my slingshot. You know what happened? He 
bent down, took five smooth stones from the brook, walked up to Goliath, and Goliath laughed at him. Have you sent me a little boy to taunt me? Boom, falls down, cuts off his head, holds up his head, it's over. But he was unwavering. David also remembered times in his life where he was more than ordinary. I mean, I would think of 1 Samuel 21. David is hungry, his men are hungry. He lies to the high priest about eating some sacred bread. And they eat it and run because they're being chased by Saul. Saul comes in and says, who fed these guys? The priest said, I did. And Saul has a guy kill 85 priests and their families. 85. David had lived with the fact that he lied and it led to the death of a lot of people. He remembered that. Do you remember unwavering times and times where you were just disobedient? David could. Or the same, same chapter, David is, hires himself out to the Philistines and the Philistines come in and say, well, you know, this guy's a warrior for Israel. Maybe he shouldn't be part of our entourage. And David heard about it. So David, in order to not make them think he's a great warrior, foamed at the mouth and let the spittle come down his beard. And he started licking the sides of the door frame, feigning that he was an insane man. And they left him alone. So we got enough crazy people. One more doesn't make any difference. Hmm. David remembered a few chapters later where there's a guy named Nabal, a wicked man. David wanted some of his sheep to eat because he'd been guarding the flock. And Nabal said, no way. And it says that David strapped on his sword and told his men to strap on their sword. And they were going to kill Nabal and everybody with him probably. And Nabal's or Nabal's wife heard about it. And she went to meet David with some food and said, forgive the stupidity of my husband. And David said, thanks be to God, he sent a wise woman to keep me from shedding the blood of people who are innocent. David remembered that. He said, if one for Abigail, I would have killed people maliciously. So, so, so see, and I, I remember, I mean, just in, in my own life, I mean, there's a mixed bag. And so his prayer is, God, give me a unwavering, loyal spirit towards you. I got you. one of the most fascinating, David could remember, one of the most fascinating episodes in the life of David. I, this is in 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30, David's been pursued by King Saul. He goes from place to place. He's got a few hundred guys he hangs out with. They are his men. He slept in the field with them. He has shed blood with them. They've walked with him. They're out putting down some insurrection by some local raiders and a group of ne'er-do-wells come in. They're called the Amalekites, and they seize all the children and the wives and the goods of this small band of a few hundred men, and they take off with them. And so the Bible says this. They came back from fighting their battle. I'll start in verse 3. And it says, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. They felt emotions. And David wept for his wives. And, and David, verse 6, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So, 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 the, the, the David, I mean, David was distressed because they spoke of stoning him. I'd be distressed. You know, let's stone him to death, guys. It seems like a good idea to me. I'd be very distressed. They were bitter. They were angry. 
But these are guys you've bled with and lived with and loved and cared for, and they want to stone you to death. Come on. But I love this little tag. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David's sitting on the throne. He says, I remember doing that. I remember that. I am not where I used to be. I used to be wholeheartedly engaged. I'm not now. Creating me a clean heart, oh God. You see what happens is, say this to those of us who are a little bit older, over 40. Hosea 13 says, verse 6, when I fed them, they became satisfied, and then they became proud, and they forgot me. I've seen many people, Lord, please do this. God does it. Thank you. I walk away. David remembers. He remembers. There's a hymn that some of your older remember singing. And uh, I was singing this hymn, but I, I, I didn't like it. Let me tell you the hymn. It was written by a 25-year-old years ago who died one year after he wrote the hymn. Um, anyway, it goes like this. My, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Another stanza. I really like this stanza. Until the last line. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the crowns upon thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let me tell you why I didn't like it. That last line, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Sometimes I sing, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, can't, I, can't, I, I can't say that. There have been times where I've been more engaged than I am now. So I, I kind of felt, and so I've already struggled even singing that. And, and then recently I was thinking about it. I was going through my mind and I thought, it, I can sing that hymn with gusto if it's aspirational, if it's what I want to say. But I can't sing that hymn to, if it's a hymn of declaration. Do you see the difference? See, when I sing it aspirational, I'm saying, Jesus, I want to love you more. I want to love you more today and I want to love you more and more. But if it's declarative, I don't think any of us can really sing that because our relationship with the Lord has its dips and ups. Our relationship with each other has its dips and its ups. I mean, so it's the, it's, it's the trajectory of your heart. See? It's the trajectory of your heart. I mean, the Bible says with incredible clarity, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. Right? So, I'm walking down a path with my wife, and somebody walks up with a gun, or, and he says, I'm going to shoot one of you. Well, there are days when I would run to the guy and plant the gun here and say, shoot, do it. But then there are days. <laughs> Not that often. But there are days when I, I would still take the bullet, but I wouldn't be quite as aggressive. Because, you know, your marriage is like that. And I love being married. 
What I'm saying is that that's true in any relationship. There are times you say, shoot. There are times you go, okay, it's my duty. See, see, <laughs> duty is good. But I think when, when I find myself dutifully driven, which is not bad, I should always labor to make it joy. See the difference? See, duty is good. Good, good, duty is good, good. Um, Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God's forgiven you in Jesus. I'm going to do that, but I, I don't want to want to do that. I want to, I want to, I want to emotively feel that, see? So, so I look at this church and I go, I think of Mark 10. There's, there's a blind man and Jesus is coming by. And here's the Jesus coming by. It's one of my favorite parts of the gospel. And he, he, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, which is a term proclaiming that Jesus is divine. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody says, be quiet. Jesus stops and says, bring him forward. And, and it says that he sprang up and threw his cloak off and came running to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it's pretty obvious. You know, he's blind. But I think the Lord wants his children to say, Lord, do this for me. And David's case is creating me a clean heart, oh God, and give me a resolute spirit. Let me get rid of pornography. Let me get rid of this lust. Or maybe creating me a thankful heart, oh God, instead of a complaining heart. God, I repent. I'm just complaining. Or creating me a, 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 a non-scorekeeping, non-bitter heart toward my family, toward my spouse. Lord, creating me a, a heart that doesn't slander, but a, a heart that speaks truth and gives people the benefit of the doubt. Lord, I don't want to be known as a person that just is negative. And I want to be known as a person who is gracious and kind. Lord, change my speech. What, what does God want to do in your heart today? See, the Holy Spirit empowers his people to change. Therefore, we can cry out, create in me. Oh, create in me, Lord. God is the decisive factor in our change. Not my willpower, not my heritage, God, what does God want you to do? How does God want you to change? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are, um, as, as we live out our faith, uh, we want to change. And we thank you on this Sunday that's recognized as Pentecost Sunday that there is the power that you bring by the Holy Spirit. That David in his incredible sinful state, I mean, just could cry out because of the blood of the lamb, there's forgiveness. And as there is forgiveness, I can cry out, Almighty God, create in me a clean heart and renew a willing spirit. That's our prayer, Lord, today. Whether it's a clean heart, a, a non-fault-finding heart, or a heart that rejoices instead of complains, or whatever it is, we want to do that. 
because we want to represent you to our contemporaries so men and women can see the beauty of Christ and be saved by the work of the cross. So teach us and guide us and thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.